0: Welcome to the Max Moo Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. On today's episode, we grapple with four very interesting and provocative pieces of theater happening in New York City. Then stay tuned after our discussion for a brief preview of the second season of The Ensemblist, one of our sister podcasts at the Folio Group.
1: Enjoy the show. Let's start with introductions. Liz. Speaking of, I'm Liz and I'm Fuck Yeah Great please. Jeremy.
2: I am Jeremy Barker. I'm a critic and writer, editor of Chance Magazine, former editor of CultureBot, man about the theater town.
0: (laughs) And dramaturg, you should say. You should say your affiliations.
2: Oh, okay, cool. So we're not recording right now? No, we are. Oh, okay, great. (laughs) Perfect. I'm also a dramaturg. I work with the theater company, Sister Sylvester, uh, amongst others.
0: Yes. One of the more amusing antidotes from Maximu's past catalog involves the Sister Sylvester production. I don't know if I've ever told you that story. No,
2: you didn't.
3: You'll have
1: to tell me at some point. (laughs) Maybe one day you'll have to listen to that. That's a good one. You'll have
0: to listen to that. It's a good one. Okay. And I'm Lindsay from Maximu. Okay. So we have been to four days of theater together, all in unison. We are still alive. We have survived our outing with little violence amongst one another. <laughs> Significant stage violence.
1: Yes, sign- um, <laughs> sig- lots of violence in front of us, but not within us.
0: Yes, and now we're going to talk about what we saw, yeah. and I'm going to kick us off by discussing The Undertaking from the Civilians at BAM. So this is a production written and directed by Steve Cosson in collaboration with Jessica Mitrani. Now, if anyone has been to a civilian show in the past, you know, or if you've ever listened to this podcast, because we talk about them like four times a year, um, (laughs) they are an investigative theater company. And they go out and do interviews around a particular topic, usually something that's a little bit controversial, possibly salacious. Um, but definitely, sort of the underside, darker parts of life that they're investigating. And this production is on death and mortality, it's specifically the passage from being alive to being dead. Um, it's a little different from other civilians' productions that I've seen. In particular, if you've seen any of the cabaret performances they do, let me ascertain you. It follows a very similar structure to that, but with some differences. The first being that there are only two actors on stage. They play two primary characters and all of the other characters that they interview. It's kind of a meta production and that part of it is about the investigation that led to the piece. Um, the second way that I would distinguish it is that Steve and presumably his collaborator Jessica are characters in the production and this gives it a much more personal feel than any other civilian show that I've ever seen in the past. They, it's really a story I, about Steve's own anxiety with dying. Um, And he is somebody who has uh, personal experience with the AIDS crisis and there is definitely, that is a shadow cast over the entirety of the production and I would say that the emotional high point involves him telling the story of how that crisis has influenced his own life. Um, I think it's interesting that, that the approach Steve took to this was to be both the principal researcher and writer The director and also a character in the show it makes it so that he is front and center and part of me wonders if that made it so that he didn't have quite the emotional distance to really delve into the deeper darker parts of this story because there's just something about it for me that didn't quite click it, it's, it was an interesting intellectual exercise. There were definitely moments when I left. There were definitely moments when I felt, you know, heartstrings tugged. But as a whole, I felt that it just wasn't quite clicking altogether. What did you guys think?
1: Well, you know, this is actually my first experience with the civilians. I somehow have missed everything they've done up until <laughs> this point. So I'm like aware of them because of Maximu, but I hadn't actually seen anything. So I knew the gist of what they did. So this piece surprised me because it wasn't what I was expecting. I knew that it was this sort of found text interview, um, and working on a on a certain topic, but I wasn't expecting as much of a story, like the way they gave it a through line. So you first have uh Steve with his is it Jessica?
0: Well that's the collaborator, but in right. the show, I can't remember her is name.
1: Lydia, Lydia um uh, who is talking about death and the way they deal with passing through. And then it sort of leads to a discussion of, uh, Cocteau's Orpheus, which they then reenact interspersed with this discussion of how you get to the other side and what that means and making peace with the not being, whatever that might mean. And so, I wanted more of the the firsthand stories. I wanted more of the interviews. That's what I came in expecting and I wanted more those were those were the part where it really sparkled. It sparkled to me. <laughs> I'm going to go with I'm just going to commit
2: to that word. Yeah.
0: I think that's fair because there was that bl- white plastic.
1: It wasn't so a very sparkly it wasn't set. It was sparkly set. <laughs>
2: yes. But yeah, no, I, I actually think that you're you're onto something by bringing up The fact that Steve Koston having drafted himself as a character into the piece affects its perspective. Uh, One of the things, uh, I was concerned that that character represents a sort of ambivalence on his part as an artist, and I think that translated through the show. In the end, I didn't see this as a play about death. I saw it as a play about a white queer artist in New York dealing with his own fears of death. And all of the narratives wind up serving his own personal journey. And while it was affecting, and of course, uh, uh, his experiences um, with regard to AIDS are, are very profound, I don't think that's the only form of death that is um, a, a very complicated thing to grapple with. And particularly based on some of the other shows we've seen, what we've seen in New York happening over the last, or in the United States happening over the last week, the fact that race and the way in which uh, uh, race and uh, racial bodies in the United States are subject to forms of violence, it doesn't come up. And it, it, it felt, uh, possibly through no fault of its own, uh, the show, to me, felt a little out of step with the dialogue we're having in the United States about death right now. It felt myopic. On a personal
0: yeah. level, did you see your own perspective on death reflected in the show? No how so <laughs> I don't
1: I don't know I guess or how not so <laughs> well I have the not particularly uncommon uh background of growing up very religious and how religion colors your belief of the afterlife and then your maybe embrace or rejection of that and I was expecting especially because um Lydia Do they say where she's from? I mean, she's... She's from Brazil. Brazil. She's from Brazil. And I thought, are we going to get some sort of cultural... The difference between Stephen and and Lydia and their cultural background in this? Because Brazil's very Catholic. Where does that... go? But I don't know. I just... I felt like there were pieces missing of this conversation. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that's because of, of Steve's focus, decision to focus and frame the piece around himself and his worldview... I get it. I gather that the civilians are typically more wide ranging in their topics. Is that true?
0: I think that they don't usually pick a through line
1: oh, okay. so there's it, not usually
0: yeah. I mean, they produce all kinds of work, including you know, narrative plays that are very traditional in a sense. but in this felt more linked to the let me ascertain you model where there's not an overarching individual storyline that passes through the whole of the play.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, and I don't think that they've ever done anything where they dramatize themselves and their own investigation in it, which I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. So I felt Ah. like that made it a a very, they established Steve establishes his own perspective in relation to the material and therefore uh, inhabits a very, the show feels ambivalent to me. It feels like it can't make up its mind about anything because of course what it's dramatizing is the creator of the show on stage. You're watching him go through. He's even setting up in his dialogue with his psychopomp. um, He's even setting up the nature of the interviews, which these two actors then step out. There's a lighting change. Each of them have to inhabit one of these actual people that they, that have been interviewed for the show. Um, but, it, but it, you know, it's, it becomes a very focused and, and, and sort of limited, like you're always seeing Steve Kossin, the director, staging Steve Kossin, the character, investigating a subject, which the actual Steve Kossin did. So there's these multiple layers. But to me, it, it feels muddled and ambivalent rather than taking a very strong perspective. I feel like maybe that's because in the end we can't make sense of death. But what Steve Kossin dramatized in this piece was his own abil- inability to really wrap his head around it rather than talking to multiple people and their inability to do so. We don't see actually a diversity of perspective in it, which is weird considering the nature of the show and its documentary nature. In
0: fact, mm-hmm. it even just dismisses entire perspectives on the topic, saying, I don't understand that. That doesn't that perspective on death makes no sense to me. Right. Move al- moving along.
1: Yeah, and I don't feel like it... It doesn't feel at the end that it's really had an impact on him either learning these perspectives and trying to grapple with it. Like I feel like there was no personal change for him, so why am I supposed to be invested in it almost?
2: Can I ask, there is a personal story that he tells in it with regard to his mother and grappling with her decline through MS... And there was a very strange thing to me. I I don't know if it's true or not. I I would presume that the fact that that element was introduced in the script means it's true. It also struck me as odd to take a living person, going through the experience of death, who's so closely tied to that main character, but to deny her a voice or a representation. I mean, there's other interviews conducted and performed that are with people dying, grappling with death, talking about the death of others. It's interesting that that character exists as sort of like a blank, you know, we're aware of her, but she's not part of it. And I, I felt like maybe it's obviously not my job to tell Steve Kossin whether or not he should do that, but it did feel like a sort of retreat from an uncomfortable topic, which he introduced by making it so much about himself.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's move on to the next thing, which is also a verbatim piece of theater.
2: Uh, a <laughs> movie. Right. So... Well, uh, we have to put this in context, too. So the, the next piece we're talking about is Nature Theater of Oklahoma's Life and Times Episode 8, which is one of three which are currently being screened as part of the 2016 Crossing the Line Festival. It's Episodes 7, 8, and 9, all of which exist um, in video or filmic form such that they can be seen on a screen. And we... We only saw one of these episodes um, uh, at the opening night of the festival. Um, before I actually talk about this, though, since the festival is just kicking off, I to do want to mention a couple other interesting pieces before we really dive into nature theater. Um, I personally think that this year's festival is uh, great. There's um, a variety of pieces that I really can't miss. Um, for me, the big ones are Romeo Castellucci. Who's going to be having his New York City debut? Uh, Castellucci is an Italian-based director with a company called Societas Rafael Sanzio, and he's he's certainly been here a number of times. He's had a long-standing relationship with Montclair University, the Peak Performances Series. Castellucci is one of the most widely regarded, uh, highly regarded directors in Europe. So it's a, I think a big deal that his. Uh, Julius Caesar is going to be coming to the city for one short weekend. Um, it's only October 1st and 2nd with performances twice a day. But additionally, there's two pieces coming this to this festival from Tim Etchells and Forced Entertainment. Uh, I'm going to be seeing all tomorrow's parties this week, um, which is going to be, I think, great. It's the New York premiere of that. And there's a world premiere um, that they're also going to be doing. And then finally, we have a retrospective of the work of the French choreographer, Jerome Bell. And I'm going to be seeing uh, their Jerome Bell's uh, The Show Must Go On, which is a legendary piece that I've really wanted to see for years. And also, Lindsay, I have to point out that as part of this festival this year, Dickie Bow. Yes. The uh, person who was, to my mind, the standout performer we saw down at the Fusebox Festival.
0: Yes. And you can revisit that conversation. I'll link to it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, anyway, it's a very exciting festival. I've said that Crossing the Line, it's one of my favorite festivals done in New York every year. And this year, I think that um, they've really, you know, hit it out of the ballpark with their lineup. So it's very exciting.
0: And just to contextualize a little bit more with folks who have been listening to the podcast for the for a long time I would very much put this festival in the vein of the January festivals that we go crazy about every year they're drawing from the same sources these are artists you wouldn't be surprised to pop in and out of those lineups so if you've enjoyed that type of programming in the past this would be very much to your liking
2: yes but now nature theater yes so Nature Theater, the, I was, when I was thinking about coming in about this, the, the, the interesting thing about this is I moved to New York in 2010. And since I moved to New York, I have been hearing about the project that is Life and Times. <laughs> and I was thinking about the, like, the metaphor that came to mind was that this is sort of like, you. have you ever had a friend who decided to take part in the New York Marathon. And you follow them. You follow them as they train. You go out to you know, get your spot to watch them during the day. And it, it, there's so many months of buildup. It's such a long period of buildup. And eventually, they're just going to run right by you, and it's going to be done in 30 seconds. Um, and so somehow, it always inherently feels, I don't know, like uh, the payoff is, 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 is somehow... Uh, out, of, out of sync with the, um, the, the buildup. And by that, I'm not talking about the length of the piece. I'm actually just talking about the challenge of bringing life and times um, to fruition. So the, the quick backstory is Kelly and Pavel, the creative duo behind uh, uh, Nature Theater, they did a series of 10 or so interviews via phone with a, a, a collaborator of theirs, Um, And they have taken those telephone conversations and turned it into what at this point is about 16 plus hours of performance, or film, or animation, or there's even an illuminated manuscript that you engage with in some way. I didn't see that one. Um, It's very much so based in uh, verbatim work. Uh, We're getting uh, uh, an unedited transcript of everything that's being said. It is a long, immersive, complex piece. Uh, a couple of years ago, actually, as part of the January Festivals, you were able to sit through episodes one through four, each of which was performed using a different style, and um, that I think that was like eight hours total. It was so ho yeah, and that
1: had the the murder mystery,
2: yeah, the,
1: the dance piece,
2: yeah. I think uh, there was a musical one, a choral piece yeah. of some sort. So. Over the years, I think that um, the company has sort of like uh, uh, taken a more creative view to, to, to bringing these episodes to stage. There is, in theory, one more going to come. Uh, like I said, eight, not, uh, 7, 8, and 9 are currently at um, Crossing the Line, and the 10th, details of which I do not know or have, uh, should come at some point in the future, so it'll.
0: I think there's been some doubt cast on whether that will ever come to fruition. Yeah. I
2: think so too. I, I'm surprised that we have seven, eight, and nine. To be honest, <laughs> well, there was
0: also a goal to perform them all at the same time in a marathon, which I think is also there's significant
1: doubt as to whether that will ever happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, this has been a probably a ten year creative process that's going on. I mean, it's yeah. it's huge. Well,
0: wasn't the um, collaborator. Her name is Kristen Worrell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, what age did they start interviewing her? I think it's her childhood. When she was eight, if I, I
2: thought. No, they interview her. I mean, they did the interviews over the course of uh, a very brief period of time. It The, the entire, uh, the, the, the arc of the thing is she narrates her entire life. I think they yeah. did it in the late 2000s, though. She talks the, about being a child. Yeah, they didn't
1: interview I her see, at eight. They I interviewed see. her about any, yeah. in each... Segment covers, you know, a brief period of her life.
2: And before we get too far ahead, episode uh, eight, which we just saw, is a film. It's done in um, incredibly long takes, incredibly long shots of the cast performing a, a choral version of this verbatim interview text against, what is that, a Wurlitzer organ type thing? It sounds a little bit like church music. And all of the shots are done um, around the New York City region um, at uh, morning and night. So there's a very lovely quality of light. Um, And the subject of it is actually uh, when she moves to New York City to pursue a career in the arts. It's when she's going to graduate school school. at the new school. So and it
1: goes from there to about September 11th.
2: Yeah. Right yes, which
0: she was in New York for, and she recounts her experience mm-hmm. that day and some of the immediate aftermath. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: But, um, yeah, that, you know, having seen, I haven't seen all of these episodes, but having seen many of them, there's something about them. I, I, I don't know. Do you, do you, do you, did you enjoy watching it? <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure that that's necessarily what they're going for, but there's this, it, 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 to me, I, the sheer scale and effort that goes into it is always so present that I feel like it should be more compelling than I often find it. And I've loved their other work aside from this 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 big project of Life and Times. I mean, uh, Ro- Nature Theater's Romeo and Juliet is one of the more brilliant pieces of contemporary American theater I think I've ever seen. But this piece, it's, it so challenges your willingness to accept it. I mean, this film is two hours of people singing non-lyrical verbatim lines with, you know, it'll be like, blah, 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 like, um, blah, 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 like, um, uh, and against an organ. It, it feels very single tone, even though, of course, as with these other versions they've done, what they're doing is using these elements, whether it's the, the music or in this case, the cinematography and the scene settings to to provide a dynamism, it's, I don't know. I find it, I don't know. What are your no. What are your feelings on it?
1: Well, I want to ask both of you, because I've seen quite a bit from Nature Theatre of Oklahoma. I really enjoy them. I discovered them very early on moving to New York before I'd really been exposed to a lot of New York theatre because I knew someone in the company, and I was like, well, I don't know who they are. I'll just go to their show. And so I've always found them very overwhelming, there shows for, for better or for worse. There's just, there's always a lot. And I was thinking about this, and I want your opinion. I think I would have enjoyed this more if it was live and not a film. Because for me personally, I have a very hard time connecting with films, just in general. Like, uh, there's a lot Same. of distance. Yeah. I get fidgety. I just, I can't sit for that long. And, about halfway through this because honestly the the beginning of this I was very into it I was really enjoying the arrangement what they were doing and then there was no um heightening you know when they talk about improv where it's like you have you establish what your baseline is and then you have to take something to to heighten it to bring the intensity up and I this was lacking that but I wondered if it was live and they were playing more with staging and the way people leave and are interested because it's not all of them singing the whole time we break down into singles duets that if I had seen that how they made those transitions instead of just film cuts if I would have enjoyed it more it would have found it more interesting more or easier to connect I'm not sure
2: well, I mean, part of me wonders if that's not part of their point. I mean, they, yeah. I, to, to my mind, if I had to try and summarize what I, having sat through God knows how many hours of this point, I guess at this point it's over six, um, uh, which is less than half of the total that Life and Times <laughs> consists of. But one of the things I feel like they're doing rather specifically is they choose a sort of an aesthetic, whether it's film or music or a, a murder mystery show. And they just sort of slap it atop this um, verbatim text, and it they those two things never actually collapse. And so, like watching the film, you, you know, you wind up listening to the lyrics, the narration of this life story, which has virtually nothing to do with the context of the images you're seeing or the music. And you see, like, for me, it's interesting because you see, like, oh, well, here's a little story which could have been turned into a conventional play. Here's a coming of age thing. Here's, you know, the moving to New York story and dealing with, you know, the absurdities of living in New York or something like that. And they resolutely refuse to do it. And I feel like that's something that you've seen throughout the uh, the, the first of the pieces I saw I think was episode three which is the murder mystery but the way the murder mystery is done it has a very sort of large but cheesy drawn trompe l'oeil backdrop they're all in character costumes and they don't move for almost the entire show each of the actors simply takes an incredibly arch pose to create a tableau with very wide-eyed intense gazes at one another and then they deliver the lines in a very stentorian fashion um, so that one also, I mean, there's there's no entrances, no exits. It's like two hours long. It's really imposing that tension between the text and the aesthetic, rather than ever allowing them to collapse.
1: Yeah, I'd be really interested when we were I was trying to figure out because I've seen another one of these. I still can't remember which number it was. It was the dance one, which I think was maybe episode two. Um, they're talking about episode. Four and a half, which was animated based on the stories. And that I would be interested in seeing how... It, it sounds like kind of what you're talking about, taking these stories and spinning them out and, no. and illustrating them a Did little bit. Did you see Four and a Half?
2: No, I didn't. Okay. Okay. I'm not sure, isn't four, I think four and a half was created to be a summary that you could watch before you go into five, six, seven, and eight, nine. I might be wrong about that, but I think that they actually did that so that they would have, you know, it's sort of like last week, you know, know, flashback to previous episodes. I don't know. I might be wrong.
0: Well, I actually loved the introduction Pavel did (laughs) before the film to address very specifically the point you just raised, Jeremy, which he said... The backstory is think back to whatever happened in your life before you were 24. That's the backstory. <laughs> and I just love that idea. That it didn't really matter what that was. There's a certain similar arc to many lives in, at the age of 24 where you're entering graduate school, the thoughts and feelings and insecurities you're having imagine that person and here's their story it doesn't really matter what her specific backstory is yeah I need to get a a job Familiar setting
1: yeah I I mean the whole beginning part was really I need to make money because I'm a broke student here's this stupid weird job that I had that maybe wasn't what I wanted to be doing but it was I thought it was helping but maybe it wasn't yeah and I guess the other thing I wanted to bring up with this is because now we saw two different verbatim not just two different verbatim shows but two shows where the narrator acknowledged that they were going to be in a show and what their role was within it and how that colored the story except in Undertaking we actually got Steve on stage and this Kristen I guess is part of it but she's not the the main narrator as a performer.
0: No, yeah, she's her her presence is absent except for her words which are yeah. being performed by well, these it, kind of disembodied humans. Well, she's yeah. a member of the company and yeah. in earlier
2: versions I think that I was I was trying to remember I'm pretty sure there's one that uses an aleatory device like a chance-based thing to get the performers to do the lines and I think they had her do it. So she was like sort of as a conductor of the piece within an earlier version. She's the conductor of them performing hmm. her own lines in a weird way. But
0: when you're watching it, there's no they're an ensemble. So there's no like lead characters no. or even no. character building or personality. This they stare a- ahead at the screen as sort of automatons. It could be robot. It could be robot seeing yeah. mm-hmm. and. They don't, in, they don't really interact with one another. There are times when there are random people on the streets in Soho that are engaging with a camera, but the performer's not engaging with them at all. Um, so there's not any character plot in the traditional sense.
1: Um, I don't know. I, just, I thought it was very interesting when I've experienced other verbatim or found text the... Subject doesn't necessarily know what's going in or what will be performed, whereas both of these, the narrator is hyper-conscious of what they're doing and 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 what's going to be presented.
0: At the end of episode eight, she actually expresses some anxiety about how the tapes will be used and about her mentioning human beings whose names we might recognize and how they might feel about their way they're represented in the however the tapes are used, she doesn't know at that point what's going to happen.
2: Yeah. I mean, the the, the difference, I suppose, and even this is somewhat complicated because as a critic, when, whenever I come to something that's supposed to be documentary or verbatim or real, quote-unquote, you know, that's always external to the performance in some way like we don't have to believe that what's said in that is unedited or not the crucial difference is i think we're very much so aware that the undertaking was much more consciously crafted with elements being fictionalized i mean even one of the characters names uh, the uh the 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 female performer in it, her primary character, the psychopomp, the Brazilian artist, that's not even the same name as uh, Jessica Petrani what, or whatever. Mm-hmm, um, so, I mean, we're very aware, I guess, at a practical level that Steve Koston is fictionalizing, um, whereas nature theater just seems to let both things roll against one another and allow something to emerge or not emerge almost by chance. They're, they're relying on tension rather than doing much to smooth it out at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I just want to mention that after the show, they served peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because they are mentioned in the film. And I haven't had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich like Skippy peanut butter on white bread in a very long time. And I've decided it is one of the most delicious foods on the planet.
1: It was so. it was delightful. <laughs> it was
0: so good. It, and I said
1: it, and I mean it. It was like taking communion, where you like got in your little line, you went up, and you saw Kristen, and you got your sandwich Wait, and your you, wine.
2: Do you know Do you know No Dice? I think that was their breakthrough show about a Decade ago. Mm -hmm. And it was also based on uh, verbatim phone conversations. It was about four and a half hours long, and in the middle, they would serve you uh, a paper bag lunch like you take to school with like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in it.
0: I'm a fan of that. All
1: right, let's move on. Underground Railroad Game. Let me open this up. So, Underground Railroad Game is at Ars Nova and um, created Jennifer. Jennifer Kidwell and Scott Shepard uh, play a pair of teachers at a middle school, right? Hanover Elementary. Hanover school. School. Elementary. Fifth grade. Fifth, Fifth grade. grade. Fifth grade. And oh, right, that's when I did Civil War. Uh, and they are in an effort to make the unit more exciting, more appealing. Um, the classes are playing games to earn points for the north or south. They, we reach under, oh, because we're also all involved. The audience is, is the fifth graders. Uh, so you would go into your seat, and there's a little action figure army man, and either it's blue or it's gray, and that's your side. And we're going to play a bunch of fun games to earn points to either reaffirm or rewrite history to see if the north or south is going to win. Now I should point out that... Uh, One of our teachers is a black woman, and the other is a white man, which obviously brings in a whole slew of things. And then you get this wonderful sort of twisting reality, is it real, is it imagined, is it internal, is it external, Uh, because they are also starting a relationship sort of behind the scenes of this project. So... It's a fascinating and very, very cringeworthy take on race, sex, class, privilege, baggage, and the Civil War. And I don't know about you, I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. It is incredibly uncomfortable, and I think your enjoyment of it probably... um, varies with how, how much you can tolerate being uncomfortable in the theater. But I thought it was fascinating. Uh, it Reminded me a lot of your mother's copy of the Kama Sutra.
0: I saw you tweet about that, say yeah. more because that show did not come to mind. <laughs> well, I,
1: I think sort of on a surface level because to me both of these shows are dealing with people, two people coming into a relationship with their own baggage. I mean in underground Railroad game it is much more explicit, you know, with with race and gender and class. Um, but people coming in with their the way that your personal history and everything you come into affects your relationship with a new person. And I just I think that's an interesting subject to explore I don't think that's the main through line here by a long shot but that to me is what felt very similar so go ahead (laughs) y'all
2: Jeremy Um, I agree that it was very very cringeworthy in theater I've had I've been going back and forth on this show since we we saw it Um, I mean I don't know if we we want we don't want to necessarily risk giving away too much we trying to avoid spoilers here
0: I think Liz has done a very good job of describing the show and talking about it without spoilers. So let's mm-hmm. say if you are listening and you don't want spoilers, skip ahead to the next time jump to the next time code right. that mm-hmm. I will list on the episode page on maxmoo.com. Yeah. So, so go ahead and spoil away. Okay,
2: Woo! so the reason um, the, the other thing I would think we, we should need to bring up is is what happens on stage is like uh, it becomes like a performance of eroticism. So, like on the one hand, we have this sort of almost comic or cheesy relationship that they build between these two teachers, but on the other hand, it more and more brings in the iconography of race in American society. Mm-hmm. At one point, the 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 black actor is forced is presented in sort of like this fantasy moment as a mammy character. Who, uh, first of all, performs that role in a cringeworthy way of this, you know, southern uh, antebellum slave talking about um, uh, 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 trying to explain to a child what it means to be a slave, only to have it turn into like, you know, her top comes off, the white actor is suckling at her teat. And that sort of eroticism carries through until the end, which is a very great. I'm not sure the graphics the right word it's explicit BDSM fantasy where in the sort of guilty white male liberal is getting off in a masochistic way at the violence of race in America and it's I've been I guess what I've been struggling with is as much as it raises these issues there's a part of me that's like wow isn't this just relying on those same violences as well. I mean, to watch a black actor have to perform those roles on stage. And I know that she is a co-creator of the show, so I'd be very curious to know what her, her perspective on the matter is. And I should actually perhaps also mention, should we bring up the fact that we are all three white individuals? Yes, should <laughs> mention. Yeah. You know, um, so there's, it, it's, I had a very complex, a complicated reaction to the show. I, I, I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> I also had a complicated reaction to it, but as a whole, I thought the piece was very smart, and I don't know that the word enjoy is the right thing to say, but I, I thought it was a really fantastic piece of theater that I'm so happy I got to see. Um, I think you raise a very interesting point, Jeremy, about when we explore the impact of racism and violence and the gender dynamics, the historical and contemporary vestiges of our history. Oftentimes, the only way to explore it is to present it and to present it in a way that indicates to the audience that what you are seeing is bad. And about halfway through this show, I thought, I i don't think anybody could be sitting in this audience and thinking that what we're seeing is good that the black actress and the character who is black is the is suffering is sacrificing a lot to communicate to the audience how bad this stuff is how bad racism is how how bad even well-intended white people who, you know, think that they are good liberals who are supporting uh, equality. Um, how even how how they can do such stupid things and say such stupid things. And the first scene that intercuts the classroom scene is is sort of the beginning of this relationship between these two individuals. And they engage in this like very racialized flirting that just, I mean, er, I mean the audience is literally groaning every time this white man opens his mouth. And I, I, I had the same thought, which is like, Oh God, in order to educate your audience on this, you have to show it to them. Um, and I thought, I felt like the both, both the black character and the black actress were having to suffer so much. And then the show really flips and does insist that the white character and the white actor sacrifice greatly to teach us all a lesson Um, and i just i this is the kind of show where i i i posted on twitter yesterday after i read the new york times article that's a preview article about the show just i wish we had a thousand articles on this show i want so I want different perspectives. And I, I wish we had more diversity around this table. I wish we had, I mean, I just wish we had black people writing about theater in New York City. Because the reaction of a person who is black has lived in New York City or in the United States or in this planet, they have a different past than I have. And they're going to have a different reaction to this show. And I really, really want to hear that perspective. And I want to hear other perspectives too. And I just, it's such a tragedy to me that in New York City theater, we have almost exclusively white people writing about theater and even at a higher level, almost exclusively white men writing about theater. So I just, to me, like this show, I have continued thinking about this show almost nonstop since we thought about it on Really, a lot of different levels—not just the show itself, but also the reaction to this show that we're going to experience. Come, you know, when the reviews come out. I think on Tuesday, um, I just think it's really provocative, and I wish it was going to provoke public opinions from a much broader audience than I think we will see.
1: Yeah, I guess I, what I appreciate about the show, even in being very uncomfortable with some of the things that are presented, and, and right being presented, and maybe not addressed in depth but I feel like I've seen this run of plays that attempt to deal with white liberal guilt about racism that still dance around the topic of racism maybe that don't bring things like the n-word to the forefront in a way that this show just like throws it out there and assaults you with it for lack of a better term um it's like this is the discussion I want to be having. Mm-hmm. This is where I want to start the discussion. Like let's not let's not fancy it up and, and intellectualize it. Let's just have it out literally, figuratively, physically on the stage. I mean, the stage just gets destroyed by the end of it. Um, and that that very, very visceral uh, discussion, I think, is a great, awkward place to start.
2: Well, I mean, it literally, I, I always remember uh, uh, from an essay Suzanne Laurie Parks wrote where she had this great description of how a typical dramatic narrative would work, which she compared to sort of like, um, I don't remember if it was a porno or just the, uh, the erotic you know, rise of a movie where the climax is as, uh, in sex, right? You, you have an orgasm. Um, And and she talks about how she doesn't like to write plays like that, how she approaches creating uh, work in a very different way. I thought it was interesting in this case that they literally present you with that climax. Like, the white man, at a certain point, having been humiliated for his race, ultimately gets off on it. And mm-hmm. What does he ejaculate mm-hmm. into? Is it the... It's blank. the quilt. The yeah, blind. it's the quilt
1: that he gave her when they were playing, <clears throat> quote-unquote, uh, Sojourner. Right. Underground Railroad at the yeah, beginning Yeah, and of
2: the play. so it is a real... Like, it turns, like, the white perspective on these narratives into uh, one of... Erotic humiliation, ultimately leading to satisfaction. So, the show itself seems to, I guess, flip that dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where we as the audience experience it, we watch a very um, surreal or or non-realistic version of, of how we might, as white people, watching a show about the black experience, how we might be expected to come to terms with something through, you know, this denouement following a climax, uh, which it's a sort of sexualized thing in and of itself and then we watch that performed on stage which means that I guess we see what we might normally do, recognize that and leave unable to occupy the same sort of space and like an Aristotelian sense of like how you Mm -hmm. come out of a drama. Um, There's nothing cathartic about this show, rather it sort of mocks you for thinking that there could be something cathartic about it. Mm -hmm. Which I think will be an interesting topic to bring into the discussion of the next show we do, but I guess the last point I I wanted to sort of ask about or bring up is um, there's still a part of me that feels like watching this show, The Underground Railroad Game, you know, it, it is, I'm not sure who the audience is. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean, there is something about a lot of theater I see that deals with race, which is really very much so about how, I guess, white people look at black people. And I feel like this show does fall into that to some degree and if we want to have a larger discussion about race and theater i guess i wonder is this show really so far is it just an edgier version of the shows that normally get produced by the theaters in new york city which are largely run by white men rewarded by critics who are largely white men and so on i'm not sure that you know i'm not sure that this show this show is more about diversity and racism than a representation of than than in its materiality something that's like a step forward i guess that was my feeling watching it and i think it's very meaningful that it's you know it's not about black experience it's about very much so how white people look at uh, black people and how white men look at black women
0: yeah i thought it was an indictment of that and in that sense i did think it was a step forward i think yeah. that there are, have been times in the past couple of years where i've seen that topic broached on stage but never so directly yeah. as i saw it here and i I hope that it's something that we see more of in the future.
1: Yeah, I think that this show lacked the um, back padding that I'm used to seeing in a lot of similar shows. Like you're saying, they're dealing with white men dealing with black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um,
0: they, this is okay, don't worry. We, we, we pushed you We pushed you a little bit, but now we're going to step back and tell you that it's good,
1: okay. Don't worry, you're still a good Good person. news, we solved racism. <laughs> we did it. Go home. Yeah. And I think that that's missing from this show, and that's why this worked for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, since you created that excellent segue, Jeremy, thank you, we will move on to our final show, which is from New York Theatre Workshop, Nat Turner in Jerusalem, a play by Nathan Allen Davis, directed by Megan Sandberg Zakanian. Now, this is a play about the last night that Nat Turner spent in jail before he was executed after the Nat Turner rebellion. This is a two-hander where, um, let's say the names of the actors because they play a significant role Philip here. James
2: Brannan plays Nat Turner yep. and Rowan Vickers plays um, Thomas R. Gray, the lawyer, the white lawyer who is interviewing and attempting to take Turner's uh, confession. Uh, And Vickers also does double duty um, as the guard, who's a less educated guard, who's um, guarding Nat Turner in the jail.
0: Yes. So I will just say my own experience with this play, which is I have like probably the average person's familiarity with the Nat Turner Rebellion. I know that at some point in my life, I had more information in my brain about it, and you know over time that is dissipated so at the moment when i entered the theater i had just the basics and so there is a brief history provided in the playbill which i do think would be to your benefit to read before watching the show i was my expectation for this show was that it was going to be more of a discussion a, i i basically thought it was going to be what the lawyer in this play thought it was going to be. And indeed, uh, it does not turn out that the lawyer is very frustrated. And I think that um, I also was a little frustrated because my expectations were a bit off. I thought it was going to be more of Nat Turner indeed telling his story, his his past, um, what led him to the uh, idea for the rebellion, the strategy of it, the reasons for it, a real just sort of you know, what you would consider sort of a storytelling piece about what he had been through on the eve of his execution. But it turns out that Nat Turner doesn't want to tell that story. In fact, his the way he feels about it is that he was ordered by God to do these things, and that the version of the story he wants to tell is just about his engagement with God through that led to the events that occurred and this frustrates the lawyer greatly because it really turns into a theological debate on an abstract level after the show i went and the new york theater workshop actually has a great supplementary dramaturgical i can never say that word i should just stop trying to play i should stop (laughs) trying to say that word i cannot pronounce it They have a great supplemental website where they have posted some interviews with the playwright and the director and also just some articles about the, not so much the the rebellion piece of it, but the controversy that surrounds the work that the lawyer in this story, who was a real person, about what he published afterwards. And there was a lot of controversy around whether he wrote the piece or whether they were actually the words of Nat Turner. Um, Some of it, some of that controversy was just, you know, flat out racist. These smart words couldn't have been said by an enslaved person. That was a critique. Um, Some people critiqued that the lawyer was benefiting from another person's story. We we just don't know as part of the problem is, is that there's no, you know, Definitive history here. The best thing we have is this lawyer's word and it's unclear whether this lawyer was a trusty narrator whether he just recorded the words of Nat Turner or whether he Created he modified them with his own perspective. And so this story is was more like I said more of a theological debate than I was expecting when I showed up and for that for that reason um, I found it maybe a little drier than I was expecting what did you guys think?
2: Well, I mean, I did tear up at the end. I I agree, I guess, in some ways, or in general. I I was somewhat disappointed in, in the show. And you, you you bring up a lot of the, the sort of historical points, which oddly, many of those historical points are not themselves exactly addressed in the play, right? There's a little bit that the lawyer has about whether or not he's verbatim recording what Nat Turner says, but actually, the play itself plays out with little ambivalence within it about, you know, its own representation of Nat Turner. Um, I, and the, the point about religion, I think that was what struck me really, I, I, I from the beginning, uh, Brannon's performance as Nat Turner, I thought was phenomenal. Yes. Yeah. Um, as for the show itself, the sort of dramatic arc, the scenography. It was, you know, uh, exactly what I expected and nothing more. It was completely predictable. And I was sure within 10 minutes of the show starting exactly how it was going to end. I mean, what it does is it turns Nat Turner into a Christ figure. Um, And it's going to, you know, you even knew that you knew that 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 the the, the sun was going to come up on the other side. So we'd see the dawn before he dies. And you knew that eventually the white ignorant guard was going to get down on his knees like he was washing Christ's feet. I mean, like it was just predictable, and like there was, I had a mental checklist. I'm like, it's gonna hit that one, it's gonna hit that one, it's gonna hit that one. Oh, yep, it hit it. Um, I have to say, personally, like watching it, one of the things that struck me is you know, we are living through a moment where uh, violence against black bodies in uh, our culture is a major topic of conversation and a long overdue one. It's been going along, it's been going on for a couple of years now at a very heightened pace, and You know, one of the the main texts on that subject, I think, that has affected many people is Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. And that I kept thinking about Between the World and Me while watching the show because he, Ta-Nehisi Coates, is so critical of the religious narrativation of the narration of the death of black people. Black bodies, violence against black bodies, the death of black people, as enacted by by white people. Like he, you know, basically his thing is, it's like, oh, great, another dead black person has to be a saint to a cause, a stepping stone on the way to a more perfect United States or whatever. And he really, one of his main uh, attempts in that book is to get us to concentrate on the violence against black bodies that actually happens in the United States to to refuse to acknowledge that it can have a higher metaphorical or religious significance, whether or not you're religious. I mean, a saint is a saint. MLK, as he would argue, has become a saint to our nation's progress forward. Um, and it did strike me that there is no, you know, this, this Nat Turner in Jerusalem, again, very much so, there's very little violence against a black body on states. There's no explicit discussion of it. Um, we only understand violence through the white characters being outraged at the deaths of other whites, which Nat Turner is then permitted to try and make a moral argument about in relation to racism. But there's no, feels like rather anesthetized the, the scale of violence that, that's happened to black bodies. We don't know the stories of what they did to his collaborators. We know very little about the other uh, uh, slave revolts that have been happening around the time, which are ending with lynchings. And I rather doubt historically that Nat Turner would have uh, gone through that night without, you know, probably being subject of direct violence. And I don't know that you necessarily need to show that on stage, but the absence of it, I guess, struck me, Hmm. of reference to it.
1: Yeah, I was very. It was funny seeing this after Underground Railroad game because remember that the reoccurring scenes in in Underground Railroad about the escape slave who's being led by the the white Quaker savior. Right. They're reenacting these for the kids. And there were so many moments in Nat Turner in Jerusalem where I was like, he's sort of being a, a vehicle to save these white people. And I thought that was odd. And I kept sort right. of the way that he saves the guard, who is an atheist and eventually is, like we said, washing his feet, or the way that he's going to redeem... Thomas Gray, who's going to be able to write his work. Like, I'm not quite sure what it was going for, but I don't feel like I got it, whatever it was. Yeah. You know. And then also you're talking about the, the modern uh, violence on black bodies. They intercut the scenes with modern music. Pre-show was modern music. So I think I was supposed to be drawing those parallels, but it wasn't really there besides modern music and classic classic situation I don't know like, something just didn't come together in this play for me and that and then the other thing is at the top I think like you Lindsay I went in with a different expectation of what the story was going to be because they come in and they go this is last night you know, all these things need to happen which automatically gives it a sense of urgency this is the last night this is your last moment um, you know Jesus etc and I felt like the, the action lacked that urgency that I was expecting.
0: That's an interesting point because I there's a there's a moment at the beginning where he's trying to watch the sunset, and it starts to become this very emotional moment because it's the last one he'll ever see. He he won't he says I won't see the sunrise because the window doesn't pay, face towards the west. Um, but this lawyer interrupts and actually makes it so that he misses the last sunset and I was prepared to have this really emotional bond in that moment but instead then that Turner character says he doesn't he doesn't he is actually not bothered by that fact because where he's going it's all sunsets and sunrises all the time and so it was this weird way in which I thought huh you had me and then you had your character express some Ambivalence about having missed yeah. this last sunset, and I, again and
1: similarly, if he doesn't care, why should I yeah and, Which and th- unfortunate and, throughout,
0: and and as the night as the night pro- progresses, you would think there'd be i mean again, the story is what the story is nat Turner, it appears based on the diaries that this lawyer published didn't recount his story, so it makes no sense for them to have recounted it, but you you expect during the night when someone's going to be recounting their story to hear it and to there to be this mounting tension and urgency to get the story out. But instead, you're just denied the story. Yeah, because nature
1: doesn't seem particularly interested in telling the story, which which is frankly a story in and of itself. Yeah. You could, you could tell that. That
0: is what the story is. That, so that's it's not it. It's like I yeah. can ask for something that isn't there. Right. But, but also, I didn't
1: sense any urgency from Thomas Gray, who is the man who has to get this story. Right, he's
2: constantly thought, leaving and going and yeah.
1: smoking. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you know again a lot of a lot of responses to this show and i guess not a lot of them very positive to be honest aside from the performances one of the things about it is you know this is another example of some of the things that underground railroad game is trying to set up and critique it's interesting to me that you know much like underground railroad game here we only have we have two performers playing more or less i guess in there is three characters the, the white actor does play two characters um but you know, it's it's about white black meeting on stage, two actors. It's two hander, one black character, one white character. It's about that cipher. It's a hist- Nat Turner is a historical figure, but we only understand him through the words of whites, um, from white perspective, and how he fits into white history. And part of what this is doing, a play like this, is attempting to take somebody who at the time. You know, I mean, he led a bloody and violent uh, 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 slave uprising, um, which did result in a number of deaths. He's, of course, at the time being pilloried as like a demon. You know, in the show, people do talk about attempting to lynch him, which doesn't actually happen. But, you know, again, this is still over 150 years later. This is an example of a black identity that's only known for its relation to white history. You know, like the white historians write it. The the white lawyer is going to write it at the time. Uh, we're going to produce this play um, as a way of, you know, uh, from that perspective of trying to understand the African-American experience, it, there's part of me that's like, wow, this is really disempowering, actually. Like, this is not, this is about how white people think of black people and their own legacy. And I actually have a real personal issue with historical dramas about racism, because I feel like one of the things they do and always propose is they always... You know, you can talk about race, but it's racism and violence in America, but it's always in the past. So if you're inclined to believe that we still have a problem today, you can connect today to the past. But if you don't want to do that, you're permitted to always see how far we've come. And part of Nat Turner in this show, his prophetic uh, statements to the lawyer is that unless we have equality and equity, unless slavery ends and, and ostensibly associated racialized violence, that um, the country will be destroyed. And he, he tells the guard that he should walk all the way to the ocean with his family and keep going in. He has to have faith in God to save them, because if he stays in Virginia, his family is going to be destroyed along with the nation if it can't reckon with it. Well, what is this play suggesting that's in relation to? Is that the Civil War? Because the Civil War ended 150-some years ago as well. This the, the, I'm actually miscalculating. Nat Turner is about 15, 20 years before the beginning of the Civil War. Um, we're 150 years out from the end of the Civil War and we still seem to have a lot of problems with race and violence against black bodies in the United States. But from that perspective, what is that line even in reference to? If it, you know, the threat the existential threat to our country is not it's not referencing the Civil War because that's over and the issues to some degree remain. I mean, when is that going to come to pass? What is its point? It just feels like No matter what your perspective, unless you're a member of the KKK, you're going to be able to go into this show and come out without really being challenged.
1: See, there we go. There's that that back padding that we can come out with and be like, oh, yes, we did it. We're smarter than that now. Yeah.
0: Well, and I also think that I don't think this is necessarily a story that conforms strictly to the white savior narrative, but there are elements of that in here, both for the lawyer and for the guard, right? Mm -hmm. The guard is a white man. Who shows kindness by bringing a loaf of bread, and it's just like it, we—it's like the story has to say explicitly, "Don't worry, white people in the audience. We know you're not all evil."
2: Well, and it's <laughs> and turned it just, yeah. on some
0: level. Like you don't have to—it doesn't have to give the white people in the audience that credit. I don't think that Underground Railroad extends that same, you know, no, no, they don't give you—they don't give you that easy out. No, and nor—and in my opinion, nor should they. Yeah, so.
2: There's a, and there's a part of me, like, to continue with what you were saying there, this is a show about the leader of a slave rebellion who murdered uh, not only, you know, slave owners, but their children and everyone else, who within this show is recast as the person who is trying to save the white people. Yeah. He's a Christ figure trying to save the white people. So we don't really experience his violence. That is crazy to me that that is what this show has become. He's, he's the lamb uh, uh, in the show they've you know it, it winds up recontextualizing him in this very strange way and I cannot make sense of it yeah
1: multiple times they brought up the fact that he did he beheaded a child in a in a crib
2: yeah
1: but it's presented that way like oh, I can't believe you brought that up you know it's just kind of washed over
2: well it attempts it, it they, it's brought never, up yeah, yeah
1: but there's never a discussion there's never he never defends it he's just like well all he he
2: says
0: is it's what god told me to do everything was preordained by god i made no decisions here
2: well well he does also to be fair i mean within it uh, nat turner does argue the moral point that's like wait a minute i understand what you're saying now he he says this from a religious perspective on the one hand he's like yes i killed the child but given how sinful it is to own slaves um Is that really, uh, I'm preventing this child from growing up to become in a different, you know, sort of sullied by this, you know, sin. On the other hand, he also makes the moral argument repeatedly that whatever the violence of his acts that the white people want to talk about, it pales in comparison to the scale of violence against blacks conducted legally by the whites. So he's constantly attempting to morally challenge them on those grounds. It... I don't know that I feel like that works dramaturgically within the piece um, because of course there's at no point, again, it constantly it is odd to me that the violence that Nat Turner enacts on other bodies is somewhat vividly described, and yet there's no actual discussion about white violence against blacks in a piece mm-hmm. that actually mm-hmm. should at some level discuss what happened to the rest of his rebellion, what happened to the other fighters. I mean historically, it wasn't pretty. But again, the play only talks about the violence that the slave rebellion commits, and not any of the violence the whites do. Uh, it's actually a very, uh, it, it's it's very fair and legalistic that they're going to execute him. We can disagree with the law, but there's virtually no, there's no representation of white hate on stage in a play. Very, yeah, well,
0: there's a little bit, not a lot.
2: Right, there's very little. Yeah.
0: Okay, well what do we have coming up what are folks excited to see other than what we highlighted at the crossing the line festival anything else
1: actually i have nothing on the books right now because i'm getting ready to open a show over at cherry lane tell us about that it's Teresa uh, Teresa rebeck's collected shorts directed by Ooh. pamela adlon uh, we're doing uh seven short plays that Teresa picked out that she wanted to do some are new some are old some are making their new york debut and yeah, it'll be at Cherry Lane in October, and uh, should be very fun. So,
2: no, um, I without looking at my calendar, I mean, uh, obviously it's the fall season, so everything is getting super busy. Um, I'm really excited about a couple things coming up at BAM. Uh, uh, there's going to be an Eva von Hova. It's the I don't remember if that's October or November. No. Um, but I'm really excited about that. I think it's the the it's called the Kings. It's based on uh, the 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 sort of War of the Roses cycle by Shakespeare. That's going to be great. Really looking forward to what is it the Nijinsky piece that's uh, going to be at BAM. It's um. About Nijinsky, right? Uh, directed by uh, Robert Wilson and starring uh, 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 Misha Mikhail Brushnikov. It's going to be oh. amazing. Misha uh, to you. Misha, Is that your buddy. Misha. <laughs> no, I've, I've actually never gotten to meet Mikhail Brushnikov, but I know a lot of people have met him through the dance world and they all call him Misha. Hmm.
0: Sure. Well, we'll be recording our October preview next week, um, so I don't want to steal all the thunder from that. But there are a couple of shows where you should probably act quickly to get your tickets because the cheap ones will sell out, starting with The Harvest
1: by... um, That's the new Sam Hunter, right? (laughs) Yes, Yeah,
0: you're welcome. My brain just completely went blank. (laughs) Uh, uh, By Sam Hunter at Lincoln Center. Those tickets are $30, and as we know, they tend to go very quickly, so I'd get on that. All right, thanks, guys. Thank Bye. you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Maximu Theater Performance Podcast. Have you seen any of these shows? What did you think? Tell us on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Jeremy is at Jeremy M Barker NY. Liz is at Miss Liz Richards, and I'm at Lindsay Barons. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as a reminder, we have merch at Maximu.com. Coffee mugs and tote bags printed with your favorite Maximu isms. Now stay tuned for The Ensemblist, and we'll see you next week for our preview of Theater Beyond Broadway in October.
4: Folio Theatrical Media. You're listening to The Ensemblist, the only podcast that shows you Broadway from the inside out. I'm Nika Graf Lanzaroni.
3: And I'm Mo Brady.
4: Every generation has their show that changed everything. You're thinking of yours right now, but. Chances are another listener's thinking of a different show.
3: You're not thinking of cats?
4: I'm n- no. Okay. The show that changes how audiences perceived theaters, how composers write it, and how actors train for the future. And while every theater lover has their own opinion about which show has been the most influential Cats. A great barometer of which shows that changed everything trickled into the art form is the Pulitzer Prize. Okay,
3: I guess that is a great barometer. Since the first Mm -hmm. Pulitzer Prize for Drama was awarded in 1918, only nine musicals have won this coveted prize. And while some of the nine shows continued to be regarded as musical theater's most influential contributors, others have been all but forgotten to popular culture. Or so we think.
4: Unlike many other theater awards, the Pulitzer Prize is given to the text, not the production as a whole. So this is an opportunity to look beyond the hype, beyond the spectacle, and beyond the preconceived notions about these shows and go straight to the source. And for those of you who haven't had the opportunity to read out the Maxwell House Haggadah with their families, we're asking the same question (laughs) of these nine musicals that we ask every Passover. Why is this show different from all other shows? That's
3: an excellent question, Nika. I'd like to say I came up with it, but I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And because we're the Ensemblist, the experts we're collaborating with this season are fellow actors who have worked on one or more of these monumental musicals. So we're going to tackle the nine Pulitzer Prize winning musicals from the perspective of the Ensemblist. How did each of these original productions use their ensembles? Did they change the way ensembles were used in the process? We know that these musicals changed how Broadway shows were written, staged, and produced, but did they change the experience of the ensemblists going forward?
4: In addition to the expert artists we're bringing into the studio, we wanted to get a sense of the historical and political climate during their creation. What was the typical Broadway show like when the play debuted and how were they unique compared to other plays of their time?
3: Thankfully, we didn't have to look too far to add the voice of one of the most beloved and esteemed experts on the Broadway experience to our research.
5: I am Jennifer Ashley Tepper. I live in Midtown West on 57th Street to be exact. I am like a professional Broadway fan. Sometimes I like to describe myself as, but I work as a theater historian and as the programming director of Feinstein's 54 Below. So I'm involved in the Broadway theater community in different ways. I have a book series called The Untold Stories of Broadway. The third book is going to be released this November, and it's very exciting. Nika is one of the interviewees. The Untold Stories of Broadway takes eight different Broadway theaters in each volume and takes you through their history via people's personal stories, theater professionals, actors, directors, producers, but also stagehands and musicians and people that aren't interviewed as often. And I punctuate the whole thing with discoveries I've made and personal stories and stories about the interviews themselves. And you get to really learn about each of the theaters. And the Broadway experiences that happen in them.
4: Our guests this season are some of the most in demand artists working on Broadway today. They're performers, choreographers, and directors, all who have had a first hand look at these Pulitzer Prize winning texts. And those experiences have given them a unique perspective on the Broadway musical as a canon. Nope, one end canon. Got
3: it.
5: One thing I think that really is the intersection of the Ensemblist and the Pulitzer Prize winning musical is that you can see throughout time that the Ensemble members become more and more a part of the creation of the shows. Really throughout, you know, South Pacific had Ensemble members who helped create their individual characters but reaching an apex with a chorus line and then continuing from there, the Ensemble members not only figured out who they were as individuals, but a lot of times they were actually in the rooms while the shows were being written. So in that way, the Ensemble journey changed as the 20th century went on
3: and so this season we will bring you nine episodes each on one of the pulitzer prize winning musicals of the I Sing south pacific fiorello how to succeed in business without really trying a chorus line sunday in the park with george rent 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 next to normal and of course hamilton i just didn't want to belt that high right now it's fine <laughs> And that's not all. We're also going to bring you a few other crowd-favorite episodes. A fourth installment of our Rehearsal Reports series.
4: Another episode in our Spotlight series on non-performing jobs in the theater.
3: And another Containing Multitudes, where we crack open the myths about being a successful Broadway artist.
4: Please help others find out about The Ensemblist by leaving us a rating and review in the iTunes store. You can also download episodes on your podcast app of choice and listen to almost our entire back catalog at theensemblist.com.